So Jesus asked that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would please teach us from that. Help us to know uh, what you would have us walk away with. I pray for every person in this room, God, that we all walk away with at least one thing that we've heard from you in these next few minutes. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I do want to welcome those of you who are watching the podcast. Great to have you with us and those of you who are in this room. Uh, Gary Haugen, who's the founder of International Justice Mission, tells a story of being 10 years old and going hiking on Mount Rainier with his brother and his dad. But as they set out, uh, he read a sign detailing all the terrible things that could happen to you on the trail. And it scared him, but of course he couldn't say that to his brother and his dad. So he said, he said that he thought that hiking on Mount Rainier was about the most boring thing he could ever think of, and he would far rather spend the day in the visitor center. Right. So that's what he did. He stayed, his dad and brothers went out hiking, and at first he said he was confident he'd made the right decision. But they were cold, he was warm, he had all the exhibits to look at, but then he said he got bored, and the warm air just started to feel stale and confining. Hours later, when his dad and brother came back from hiking, Gary, of course, said that he'd had a great day in the visitor center. But as he listened to all the interesting things that they'd seen, he said he started to regret missing out on a really cool day. That story, preachers love because it is so preachable. The church, at least in the West, for far too long has been a visitor center. Safe, comfortable, but we're missing the excitement, missing the power of Jesus because we're playing it safe. So I want to start by asking a question. Where might you be playing it safe in your life right now? Because we all do in one area or another. I mean, I've known folks, they bungee jump, they cliff dive, do all kinds of stuff like that. But, you know, when it comes to some other area in their life, they play it safe. And we all do that in some way. Maybe it's relationally. You're not opening up your, uh, to your spouse or to friends because you don't want to get hurt. Or maybe you're playing it safe in your career or in your faith, not doing those things you know Jesus would want you to do because you're afraid of what others might think of you. Well, we've been doing a sermon series on Christian cliches, and one I used to hear a lot, you don't hear it so much anymore, but in college I heard it all the time, the safest place to be is the center of God's will. And throughout this series we've said that these cliches aren't wrong, they're just incomplete, except for this one. This one is completely wrong. Completely, 100%, dead wrong. God's will is safe. Are you kidding me? Just look at the Bible. The prophets were beaten and jailed. Jeremiah was thrown into a well to die. And even when those things didn't happen, God asked them to do crazy things, told Hosea to marry a prostitute to symbolize God's love for unfaithful Israel. Isaiah preached naked, definitely not safe, right? The apostles were all martyred. The book of Hebrews says that many of the heroes of the faith were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. Other than that, though, perfectly safe. God's will is the most exciting place to be, the most meaningful, rewarding, life-giving place to be, but it is absolutely not safe because the God revealed in Jesus is not safe. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't protect us. Yes, he does from time to time, absolutely. But the cliche that God's will is safe has much more to do with American culture than with Jesus. Only in America can you hear such a phrase because safety is one of our idols. 
I mean, we are the most seat-belted, airbagged, bike-helmeted, knee-pad-wearing, hyper-insured, sunscreen-slathering, massively medicated, protected, inoculated generation in all of history. <laughs> and all it's done is make us more afraid of everything. Now, yeah, it's good to protect ourselves, and I'm not talking about risks for risk's sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But our safety idol just kind of messes us up in a couple of ways. First, it's an illusion. You can minimize risk, but 100% safety, not an option. I recently saw a news article about freak accidents over the last 100 years. So, for instance, in London at the turn of the century, a giant vat of beer exploded, creating a wall of beer 25 feet high. Eight people died, drowned in beer. Now, I know some of you are going, well, if you've got to go, I mean, <laughs> why not? In 1910, a giant vat of molasses, molasses exploded and oozed out into the street, killing 21 people, 21 apparently very slow people. <laughs> really? How does that do that? How does that kill someone? Nine o'clock didn't get that one, but you guys. <laughs> we are never safe, not 100%. You know, and closer to home and on a more serious note, do you know what one of the most lucrative places to sell drugs is in the entire state? Bellevue High. Dealers come from as far away as Yakima. We can hide in our suburbs all we want, but no matter how much we buckle up, cover up, button up, life has its risks. And not just physical risks, financial risks. You know, you can save and invest, but then the economy goes south. I had one man tell me that he was glad that he gave a bunch of money to the church right before the financial downturn because he said, I would have lost it all anyway. Might as well give it to you guys. There's, there's our social risks. If we follow Jesus, folks know we're a Christian, we might get judged. Emotional risks. That's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with in the passage that Dana just read. Emotional risks. Because he's worked hard to serve the Corinthians at great cost to himself, personally, physically, financially. And in turn, all they do, the Corinthians, is just criticize and complain. They don't like his sermons. Some think he's too harsh. Some think he's not decisive enough. And so he writes this letter in part to defend himself, but more importantly, protect the church. Because that kind of negativity can just kill a church. And he lists all the hardships he's faced. I've been shipwrecked, beaten, thrown in jail, been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. Notice how many times he uses the word danger. He is not safe. And then he goes on. Besides everything else, I face daily the, pressures of, uh, the pressure of my concern for all of the churches. I always think that last line is kind of funny. You know, I've been beaten, I've been tortured, I've been in jail. But worse than all of that is being your pastor. <laughs> I don't feel that way. That's Paul. He's been hurt. There's no such thing as safe. Second problem with our safety idol is it shrinks our lives. And I've told you before about the suburb I lived near in California called Atherton, and police report was hilarious. Folks would call the cops if there was a car parked on the street because it made them afraid. That's what happens when you live for safety and comfort. Our world shrinks down, and pretty soon the smallest things start to bug us. If we play it safe emotionally, our marriages and our friendships are going to be stale because we're not opening up to people. If we play it safe by living the conventional middle-class script, we'll have a good job, we'll have three cars, 2.5 kids, but maybe no adventure. Death by suburb. <laughs> safety is not an option. Safe shrinks our lives, and finally, safe shrinks God. He becomes nothing more than my celestial seatbelt. 
And rather than the God who loves like a hurricane, whose passion sent him from heaven where it was very safe to earth to be crucified just to beat the devil. The lion of Judah who invites us to be lions too. And too often the criteria that we use for determining whether or not something is God's will is, is it safe? Because if it involves pain or risk of any kind, it can't possibly be what God would want for me, can it? It might be. Because you see, God wants us to live to the fullest the life he's given us because God, as it turns out, believes in life after birth. So then how do we live differently? How do we get out of our play-it-safe mentality and just live a little larger? Three things. First, we've got to act on Jesus' most frequent promise. I've told you his most frequent promise before. His most frequent promise that Jesus makes, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me in pursuit of Jesus and his rescue mission, we'll save it. If you lose your life, you'll save it. This is one of the most profound thoughts in all of Scripture. See, in all of our efforts to be safe, we're actually making ourselves miserable. But if we understand the security that comes from Jesus, that even if we are killed, we will be raised to new life. If we understand that security, then we can fling our lives away on the adventures he calls us, even if they're not safe. As that great American philosopher Janis Joplin said, freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Actually, I think it was Chris Christopherson. But either way, Jesus' resurrection means we've got nothing left to lose. That's why in the first 300 years of Christianity, whenever a plague hit, everyone, including the doctors, would leave the city. But Christians would rush into the city to care for plague victims. Because they knew even if they died, they would die doing something important and meaningful and life-giving, and they would just be raised to new life again. You can't stop folks like that because they're fearless. That's why whenever Christians are killed, did you know that whenever Christians are killed, still true around the world, whenever a Christian is killed for his or her faith, conversions in that area to Christianity go up. They go up. Seems counterindicated, doesn't it? You know why? Turns out people want that kind of freedom. You know, I think we missed a great opportunity back in the early 80s when AIDS first appeared. What what if, like the early church, Christians had cared first and cared most back when it first appeared in those early days? Now, some did, but you know what? Most didn't because they were playing it safe. Safe physically because there were misinformation about how the disease spread, so they were afraid, but also safe theologically. So many Christians didn't want to be seen as approving of lifestyles that were associated with that disease. But here's the thing. You can care for someone without having to approve 100% of everything that they do. And what if we'd done that? What if we had cared first and cared most? I think today, instead of being viewed as mean, nasty, hypocritical, judgmental, no fun people, Jesus and his followers would be seen as brave, bold, adventurous folks who live large and counter to culture just like their Lord. There'd probably be a lot more Christians out there. We'd be in a whole different place, a whole different conversation with our culture. If way back then we had lost our lives, we would have found them. There's a high school guy I know who goes to a different church. I'll call him John. And every Sunday, John would sit in the same section of the church with all the other high schoolers. And one week, John noticed that there was another high school guy sitting in a different part of the church by himself. And the reason was actually pretty clear because the group that sat together was sort of the cool kid crowd and the guy on his own was not a cool kid so john said to his buddies you know what i'm going to go over there and sit with that guy got up and sat down with him 
after church, John's dad had seen him do that, and he said, why did you do that? And John said, well, I wouldn't want to sit alone, would you? Okay, that is not socially safe in high school to leave the cool kid crowd. But there's something about John's courage, his freedom from worrying about what others think. I'm always worried about what others think of me. He was free from that. You know, he's going, I don't care if you think I'm a nerd. I'm going to do it anyway. I, I want that, especially since I am a nerd. I might as well be a free nerd. <laughs> if you lose your life, you'll find it. Second way to break out of the safety first mentality is to get weak so God gets stronger. And here's what I mean by that. In the passage we read, Paul is defending himself. But in an odd way, he boasts about, not about the, ch uh, the number of churches he's founded and all that, he boasts about his weaknesses and his suffering. In the next chapter, Paul goes on to talk about a thorn he has in his flesh. Nobody knows what it is, some kind of physical ailment, eyesight issue. Nobody some people speculate the thorn in his flesh was the Corinthians themselves. You know, and God does not take the thorn away. Instead, God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I delight in weaknesses, for when I am weak, then I am strong. See, when we reach the edge of our ability, that's when God's power takes off. So the more risks we take, the more we put ourselves out there, the weaker we get, the stronger God gets, and the more we see his power on display, while the play-it-safe, non-risk-taking crowd sits around and wonders why Jesus isn't more powerful, and where are these mighty acts of God, and why isn't Christianity effective? It's not effective because you're not doing the things that it takes to get God's power to show up. Back when I did college ministry, every year we'd go on a short-term mission trip, take students on one, and I always made sure those things were super challenging. And one year, we were way in the back jungles of the Dominican Republic, and there was this one student, I'll call him Dan, who just got super sick. Now, it ended up being fine. He ended up being okay. But for a time, he was so weak and dehydrated, he couldn't walk. And there were no hospitals at all. And so we looked around. Finally, we managed to find this kind of clinic-ish thing. It was actually just this dirty, run-down shack with one light bulb and, and one guy who was not a doctor, but he'd had first aid training. I mean, it was pretty primitive. When we got him there, I, I was thinking like, okay, are they going to use leeches? Are they going to bleed him? What's going to happen? It was the best we could do for him. Well, we were supposed to fly back the next day, and since Dan was so weak, I knew that we were going to need a wheelchair at the airport, if not an ambulance. So I had to make that phone call to his mother. Oh, I was looking forward to that. Right, so I called her up and I said, this is Scott. I found a payphone, called her. Yeah, this is Scott, your son's pastor. First thing she said, is he okay? I said, well, he's going to be okay, but right now he's kind of sick. In fact, he's too weak to walk. So, ma'am, we're going to need a wheelchair at the airport and maybe even an ambulance. And then she said, well, did you take him to the hospital? Define hospital. I mean, it was bad. But the whole time, the rest of the students were pitching in. As this whole thing was going on, the rest of the students were pitching in, trying to help Dan, cleaned up after him when he got sick, stayed up nights to comfort him. On the plane ride home, I said to one of those students, thanks for helping Dad, Dan. And the student said, you know what? It was the best part of my time at Stanford so far. I said, really? I mean, cleaning up after him, after he got sick, really? And he said, you know, I don't, I don't understand it, but I just know I felt all this love from God and all this love for Dan, and that's just a way better feeling than all the competition and stress I feel at Stanford. This wasn't the most fun I've ever had, but it's the best time I've ever had. 
Well, we got Dan home. You know, he missed a bunch of school, but he got better and all of that. Years later, after I had moved here, I was at the airport in Hoquiam. Long story. I'll tell it sometime later, right? And there was Dan's mother, and she recognized me. She said, oh, I know who you are. And she introduced herself. And I was like, oh, hi. Still mad at me? How's Dan? And she said, you know what? That trip you guys took him on? And I'm like, uh-oh. She said, that was one of the best things for him. Because prior to that, he didn't feel like he had any community at Stanford. After that, he felt like he had some good friends because they showed up. We definitely weren't safe, particularly Dan. But even the people caring for him, we didn't know if it was contagious. But the weaker we got, the stronger we, uh, God got. We saw more of his power. The more unsafe we became, the more we saw God's power on display. Lose your life to find it. Get weak so God can get strong. And then finally, just want more out of life. We just want more out of life. Do you really want your tombstone to read at least nothing bad happened? You know, I think about this with my kids. You know, I was raised in a different era, you know, back before helmets and knee pads and cautious soccer parents. It was more like this. My era was more like that. I mean, that, like, that's, that's just how we rolled, right? And no overcautious soccer parent there. To, no, right? And, and, and I wonder, am I robbing my kids of something by keeping them so safe all the time? A while back, my son was climbing a tree, and he got up pretty far, and you know what I said. What did I say? Be careful. Right? Like, why do I say that? I mean, first of all, it doesn't work, right? Like, has any 11-year-old boy ever in the history of 11-year-old boys thought, well, I was going to go higher, but now the dad said, be safe. I'll be, you know, I'm not going to. Plus, what am I communicating to them about life? Gary Haugen says that after we've given our kids food and education and opportunities, our kids ask us, why did you give all of this to me? And Gary says, if, we're, if I'm honest, I'd say, so that you'll be safe. And so my kids ask me, that's it? Your grand ambition for my life is that nothing bad happens? And something inside them dies, and they either perish in safety, or they go looking for adventure in all the wrong places. But Jesus affirms their longing for a bigger life. We so often pray, Lord, keep my kids safe. How many times have you prayed, Lord, give my kids challenges that are so big they have to hang on to you. Lord, give them enough hurts to keep them human. You know, sometimes you'll hear preachers try to scare folks into being a Christian. You've all heard this as another Christian cliche. Preachers will sometimes say, if you died tonight, do you know where you're going? What a stupid question. I don't think Jesus, Jesus asked the reverse. What if you don't die tonight? Are you going to live tomorrow? So maybe that means taking some kind of emotional risk or maybe a financial risk to give to God's purposes and, fi- and watch him provide. Maybe it's to follow up on some nudge Jesus has been giving you and you know you got to do it. Maybe it's just to be out in the open about being a Christian in the office. Maybe it's a career risk, which might not mean a bigger, better job. Some of you have turned down promotions because it would have meant too much time away from family and friends, but you're not sorry because the relationships are more meaningful. I remember back when we did the capital campaign to build the new building and launch the Jubilee Reach Center and the, and the uh, Center for Champions in Rwanda, we had a series of meetings to talk about it, and we divided them up by according to who was senior pastor when you start, started coming to the church. And when it got to the meeting for folks who joined when the founding pastor was here, this is our long, long-time members, some of them charter members, right before that meeting started, one of our charter members walked up to me and he said, you know, Scott, 
You keep saying this is the sixth capital campaign we've had, but that's not true. It's the sixth consecutive one we've had, but we had a couple of capital campaigns even before you were born. And some of us gave an awful lot of money to those campaigns to build the building that you're going to tear down. And I'm thinking, ooh, this maybe isn't going to go so well. But when the meeting started, whereas in all the other meetings, you know, most folks avoided sitting in the first two or three rows, typical Presbyterian, right? In this meeting, the front rows were filled with these older members from our church who had this look of anticipation on their face. And from their comments, they were saying, Pastor, we are ready to go again. When they could have been saying, I've done my part, it's time for the younger generation to do their part. Many of these folks on fixed incomes didn't have a lot of money, but rather than play it safe, they said, Pastor, give me a vision that I can get into. I'm not dead, so I'm not done. I'm not going to arrive at death in a safely preserved body. I am going to skid in broadside shouting, thank you, Jesus, what a ride. I want to be like them. I think of what's happening at the Jubilee Reach Center now, that that campaign started. As you know, at the invitation of the school district, JRC's been running the sports programs in Bellevue Middle Schools, Christian organizations started in this church, with huge results. Test scores have gone up as much as 55% in some cases, but more importantly than that, it's changing these kids. They're getting out of gangs. They're becoming more respectful. One coach there has helped a lot of these kids and their families sometimes through some messy, difficult, difficult situations. This coach also runs a youth group, and a lot of the kids from the team have started going to that youth group. Now, he doesn't talk about Jesus on campus. We're, we, you know, we, we can't do that. But somehow the Holy Spirit has his way of getting around all of that. He's got over 100 kids coming. They call the group revolution. And the kids are doing things like turning in their drugs and their alcohol. They call it joints for Jesus. Now, is it, well, that's catchy. Now, is it, is it, is it, is it safe for that coach to be entering these kids' lives and their messy, difficult lives. No, it's not safe. It takes time. It takes emotional energy. But I want to be like that, even if it isn't safe, even if it's not comfortable, because it's bigger, it's better. What is the point of living 80 years in safety only to die of boredom at the end? There's a scene in the movie Moneyball, which I love because it's about baseball. I loved it. My kids thought it was boring, but what do they know? And there's this one scene that I have been waiting ever since that movie came out to show, and it's pretty self-explanatory. Take a look. The Visalia Oaks and our 240-pound catcher, Jeremy Brown, who, as you know, scared to run to second base. This was in the game six weeks ago. This guy's going to start him off with a fastball. Jeremy's going to take him to deep center. Here's what's really interesting, because Jeremy's going to do what he never does. He's going to go for it. He's going to round first, and he's going to go for it. Okay? This is all of Jeremy's nightmares coming to life. Oh, they're laughing at him. And Jeremy's about to find out why. Jeremy's about to realize that the ball went 60 feet over the fence. He hit a home run and didn't even realize it.
how can you not be romantic about baseball? It's a metaphor. I know it's a metaphor. The women on my sermon review team guaranteed that if I showed a movie clip with Brad Pitt in it, y'all would like the sermon. At least the women would. It's a metaphor. When Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday, he hit the home run. Not even death can stop us because we're going to live again. So we've got nothing to lose. We do not have to cling to the base in fear just trying to stay safe. We can run the bases with freedom and joy and courage and victory and absolute utter abandon. Jesus didn't say, I have come that you may have safety and have it abundantly. He came to give us big, bold, messy lives where we see God's power unleashed. Don't stay in the visitor center. Live large. Because of Jesus, we can. So Lord, help us to know that you did hit that home run. And Lord, we ask that you would please give us courage, give us conviction, give us energy to run those bases, whatever that challenge is you've got in front of us, to do it with courage and abandon and joy. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen.